0: Yes, welcome back my peoples. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. I really appreciate you guys. We've got a really exciting guest for you today. I'm loving the the, the diversity of different guests we're coming on. Just just recorded a pod with a super marketing agency, went really deep into marketing and now we're going to go deep into finance, which I'm, I'm buzzing for. So this is going to be, even if you are familiar with the venture capital industry, Amory has some really, really cool takes and, and perspectives on the industry. And I really respect what you're doing with D2 because you're challenging, you're challenging. This, this, is a, this is a new model, right? So Amory is the founder and managing partner of a new venture fund called D2. Climate tech isn't the only sector, but it's a big sector, a big focus that you're looking on. And yeah, I just thanks so much for coming on. I'm really intrigued to dive into what you're doing differently because you don't do you don't do the normal stuff. But first things first, why have you jumped? Why climate tech? Right? Because you've been in finance for a while, just launched D2, you, you were choosing to pick sectors.
1: Why was climate tech there? So firstly, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Finance has got to follow marketing. That's going to be a tough sell, isn't it? I hope everyone stays awake for this. Uh, (laughs) So I've actually been in the climate space for a while, and I was previously at Shell Ventures doing Climate Tech VC across the whole energy spectrum, uh, across the future of mobility. It's something that I really, really love. It's very close to me. But in terms of why is Climate Tech a part of D2's generalist focus? uh, Honestly, it's because the tailwinds are massive here. So we look at we look at tailwinds, we look at markets that are going to grow over time. Climate tech is arguably one of the most significant sectors that ticks that box in terms of the direction of travel of humanity. You kind of have to believe that climate tech is going to be huge over the next 20 years yeah. um, for us all to bother doing anything, right? Yeah, <laughs> it'd be a grim future if it wasn't. Yeah. Exactly. What are those tailwinds that you're speaking about, like?
0: And I know it may seem obvious to, to like us and you, you've been in this sector for so long, but for people that are looking to get into climate tech, where, I mean, I know when I was looking to get in, it felt like, it didn't feel like charity, but it, it felt like you were sacrificing something to do good for the planet. Being in the sector now, I've now realised that's not the case because of these tailwinds. So, like, What other tailwinds you saw?
1: Well, that right there is an awesome summary. And that's the biggest outcome, the biggest difference that you'll see in the sector today versus the sector maybe 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, a lot of the technologies that we take for granted today, things like solar, were sub-economic without subsidies. And now all of that has moved so far that in many cases, it's the obvious choice. So that's a big, big change. The second big change is a bit of a societal awakening. So again, 10, 15 years ago, No one was talking about sustainability, no one was talking about making personal sacrifices or changes in their life to move towards more sustainable choices. That's now a regular topic at a bar or at a dinner table, so that's a huge, huge change. So those two things are significant and that then feeds in to what you're seeing governments doing across the world. So you're seeing more and more incentive packages. So the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is a massive, massive program of spending on infrastructure that's climate positive. So Mm. between all of those different factors you've got a real momentum building
0: they named that ra so it's badly terrible so terrible, badly. terrible name every time, every time i say it i'm like right. <laughs> yeah it takes you back a bit doesn't it yeah so so there's kind of three things there which is really interesting which is one the economics becoming much more favorable towards these climate tech so for example the easiest example when you talk about climate tech is wind and solar right wind and they're now cheaper than than any form of energy ever in the history of humanity ever, right? Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. So you get to this point where the technology's getting there through the help of subsidies, this kind of stuff. Then there's the, the second element you mentioned, which was the consumer side, right? Which was people are starting to care about this at the moment. And then the third one, the governments are really starting to take notice and literally make this law they're legislating. Net zero is not isn't like oh we want to get to net zero. They're like actually legit. How do we legislate to get there? So I find that really interesting. Which three of those do you think is is the most powerful or, or, or any of them lacking? Do you know what I mean? Like there's somewhat of a loaded question there because it was really a question like are the government doing enough? The governmental stuff like is this are we pushing businesses as
1: hard as we can do or? Yeah, what are you seeing in that market? Yeah, it's an awesome question, and it's it's a tricky one because they're all interrelated, right? And so, yeah, yeah. what society thinks and values as a whole is 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 going to be what government ultimately pushes in order to get reelected, right? So yeah. you know that's largely an outcome. But then you could argue that people care about this stuff so much because it's being pushed by larger companies. It's being pushed by go- by governments elsewhere as well. So, uh, our government's doing enough. The answer is always going to be no, right? There's always a desire to push things further. I think the challenge that we have is what gets you elected in one to two years' time is not necessarily what's going to be best for the planet in 40, 50 years' time, right? So there's yeah. a little, little bit of a challenge in terms of, in terms of the kind of Western political systems. And a lot of this transition does if you're going to really prioritize it, require sacrifice. And so there's that balancing act of saying, okay, can we ensure that consumers don't receive a hit to their pocket, but that we also transition? So, In fairness to governments, that's a challenging seesaw to try and manage, right? If everyone as a whole decides, okay, we need to transition as fast as possible, well, you can do it very, very quickly, right? But it requires massive behavioral change at a societal level, and that's not really palatable to a lot of people. And so, you're balancing this a little bit. And also, look, we're in a massive global economic slowdown. It's also a tough pill to swallow when you're saying, we're going to raise taxes in order to fund a green transition. That's hard on people, right? Yeah. Um, Who are going through a huge cost of living crisis.
0: As you say, like the last 20 years have been so good, largely because of the cheapness of the extractive nature of a lot of business. So, I mean, it, as you were saying that, the kind of balance between getting elected and the long-term benefit of, of the climate, it's just like everyone's fuming about this coal mine, right? But they had to use it, otherwise they, otherwise there would have been blackouts. So it's a t- it is a tough balance to follow. It's, it's investing in the right sector. Which brings me on to to what we're doing. So you've really you you're really tackling climate or uh, not not climate venture sorry in a, in a different way to most and as I was doing my research I was loving some of the terminology you use when you explain what you do which which we'll dive into a bit but first things first for maybe uh, there's a real diversity of people that listen to this audience and not everyone will be familiar with the venture industry in in the sense of like how it works what's the what's the normal kind of payouts and and stuff so can you just give me a bit of an overview about what is the cookie cutter approach for venture a venture fund like yours
1: yeah Sure. Okay. So venture capital in a nutshell. Venture capital is sort of innovation fuel, I guess, is an easy way to describe it. Venture capitalists look for predominantly technology businesses, but a broad array of businesses, depending upon the fund. And they invest in those businesses, so they take a stake in the equity of those businesses in return for cash. They help support those businesses to scale Ultimately, those businesses will exit either by selling to a larger competitor in a trade sale or by IPOing on the public markets. And that is how venture capitalists make money. So they invest um, at one price, they hope that price increases, that company creates value over years, and then they exit. Now, the way that venture capital operates is quite different from private equity. So a lot of people will have heard of private equity. It's different in terms of, I guess the easiest way to describe this is it's different in terms of outcomes and the distribution of those outcomes. So a private equity fund will expect a normal distribution of outcomes. And what that means is there's usually a relatively tight range, right? So they'll get somewhere between, let's say a 2 or a 3x on most of their deals. And they don't expect deals to go to zero. Um, But equally, they won't expect to get a sort of 20x or a 30x or more than that unless something really, really, really special has happened there. And that's a normal distribution. Venture capital is a power law distribution, which means that, in simple terms, your best performing investment in a fund is probably at least twice as valuable as your next best, which is twice as valuable as your next best, which is twice as valuable as your next best. And so what you have is one or two investments in a fund, they will account for 90% of the returns of that fund. And you would expect that, Quite a large percentage of what you invest in isn't really going to return much value, if at all. So you'll get a bunch of companies which will go to zero, and that's a power law distribution. So, um, which is
0: a really it was a really important point uh, for basically where this whole podcast is going to go. Right, the the venture industry is geared towards one or two of the companies returning the whole, whole. whole portfolio right so uh, as a venture manager you say you raise just keep keep numbers simple A 100 million pound fund you get management fees on that so typically you get two percent right so that's kind of what your operational fee but that venture manager like yourself needs to return that 100 million before you then earn any what they call carry in the industry which is above that 100 million for every 1 million earned you get 20% of that and the rest is distributed upon the shareholders right so with how risky startups are you really need one or two companies to win big 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 to, to kind of make your money back and the industry's really geared towards that stop me if I'm, I'm wrong but the industry's really geared towards really pushing those one or two companies to make big returns as opposed to necessarily the what makes sense for that individual company. How long is it a, a, a typical fund? And uh, what I mean is that like they have set timelines,
1: right? That's you right. Know? So another way another way of thinking about this dynamic is baseballs used a lot as an analogy just because the venture industry was born in the US. And so if you think of private equity, private equity is kind of singles and doubles. So you're hitting the ball and you're moving one or two bases, right? Venture capital has been described as like a home run business. So you're swinging for the fences, you're going for that full return every single time you swing the bat. So that's a useful way to think of that distinction. So in terms of funds, fund life is normally about 10 years. It's a closed-ended fund. So venture capital investors, LPs, which are called limited partners, invest in venture funds and they lock their capital up for 10 years. So it's really different from investing in the public markets where you can buy and sell even on the same day if you want to. Mm. The way that distributions typically work in a fund is The fund manager will draw down capital from their investors, from their LPs, and they will invest in those companies. And then as those companies exit, they'll then return that capital and that profit to their LPs um, over that 10-year life. So it's not to say, okay, you invest in year one and then you get the money back in year 10. You're going to get it as companies exit. So what typically happens is you'll have some smaller exits early on. And then as the fund goes through its life, the larger ones will start to come through.
0: Yeah, so LP is limited partners, effectively who's invested in. So you've got limited partners who invest in the, the money and your
1: managing partner, which is you, is the people that actually manage that money, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. So GP and LP is the, are the terms you hear. So yeah. general partners are the actual fund managers themselves and then limited partners are the investors in that yeah. fund. Okay, nice. Yeah so
0: the typical fund cycle is 8 to 10 years right? right but you don't obviously you you want you're wanting these companies to return money at some point like so how long of that 10 year fund are you distributing in terms of investing and then
1: i guess the rest is waiting right and yeah. and managing so it depends on the fund, but normally what you'll see is kind of a two to three year investment horizon. So fund will announce, fund will close, um, and then we'll spend two to three years investing. And then you have the, the what's called the harvest period after that, which is five to seven years, where you are working with those portfolio companies. You're, you're helping them wherever you can. Funds have different models for how they help their portfolio companies. And then ultimately when they exit, you're distributing that capital during that period as well.
0: But typically after those four-year distribution right obviously the workloads then a lot less because you've got people running the company so you'd raise fund two fund three right and then then you basically like pick up and you're doing again and hopefully a bigger fund bigger fund bigger fund. and this uh, what you've just explained there is pretty standard across the industry right yep pretty standard everyone follows similar model why is that a problem
1: that's a great question. So, okay, so there there are some some challenges with the venture model. Some of these challenges are they're completely endemic to the model, and they arise because there's a bit of a misunderstanding sometimes from founders um, as to the the dynamics, the incentives of venture capital, and also there's some misapplication from some fund managers as well. So, venture capital, if you if you dial it right back to the dawn of the venture industry, venture capital was largely being deployed on really groundbreaking technology where there is a huge, huge element of risk to that, right? Then more recently, venture capital has been applied in what we sort of call winner-takes-all markets. So those tend to be companies with network effects. Like if you think about Airbnb or Uber, for example, those are businesses that absolutely dominate their category. And the larger they get, the stronger they get. Because, say, you have a higher concentration of drivers or a higher concentration of flats to rent, etc. So those are two, two good applications for venture capital and two good reasons there to take a lot of venture capital, to take as much as you possibly can as a founder. In my view, though, for the vast majority of other businesses, venture capital should have a massive, massive health warning attached to it. <laughs> and it's like prescription painkillers. It can be really, really helpful, really necessary in small doses. But you take too much of that stuff and you're going to get hooked and it's going to have real, real, real problems for you. <laughs> so uh, why? Right? Why does it create challenges? Okay, so there's a couple of things to think about. First of all, there's some simple maths. So every single time you take venture capital, you get what's called diluted. So you sell a portion of your company. Now the average amount of dilution is 20 to 25%. So every time you do a round of venture funding, you're going to sell 20 to 25% of your company. Every time you sell 20% of your company, simple maths, you need to increase the value of your business after that by 25% just to get back to where you were before right, before the dilution. Yeah. So you re, you dilute yourself, let's say, 50% across two rounds. Well, you've got to double the size of your business just to get back to where you were. The issue, though, is more than that, because no venture investor invests just to get back to where you were before, right? They're, they're hoping, especially early stage venture funds, that you are going to grow your business so large that you end up exiting for a number that returns their fund, Right, So you generate enough profit for them, for their stake, that it covers everything else that they've done in their fund, And that dynamic only intensifies the more capital you raise because every single time you raise, you reset that hurdle. Right, Your mm. new investors will have different targets that comes in. And it sets up this very binary outcome. So it's the kind of go big or go home approach that's in venture capital. And where you get to is... You get, you can find some companies where they're in a sort of situation where it's like, okay, unless we can build this business to a billion or five billion or whatever the number is, however many zeros you want to choose here, it's not a meaningful exit for our investors. And mm. so you get situations where companies brute force themselves artificially to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it raises a spectrum of like, okay, either I'm going to invest, either I'm going to exit for a billion or the whole thing is going to flame out and go to zero. It leaves very, very little margin in between those two areas. And that's that's the downside of taking a lot of venture capital. And that, it's talked about in some quarters, but I'm surprised by how frequently it is overlooked and how many founders focus on saying, okay, I just need to get to this next point where I can raise this next round and do, you know, I'm going to do my big Series A, I'm going to then go to Series B, then I'm going to do to Series C, without thinking about the implication of all of that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at where founder ownership sort of lands out, usually around the sort of series A, series B point founders own less than half of their business, right? That's it. So they've sold, they've sold so much of their company, they're now in less than half of their business and they've lost control at that stage. Really, once you've taken an institution of venture capital, you could argue you've always lost control, but at that stage, just in terms of actual percentage of the business, you've lost control. And there's some really interesting work that you can do looking at outcomes. So, we crunched some numbers, we looked at 10,000 venture-backed businesses in the US, and looked at what founder equity value looked like. So, i.e., I as a founder own, let's say, half of a 20 million business, it's obvious numbers. But okay, my stake on yeah. paper is worth 10 million. And what you see is, from series A through to series D, so okay, you've, you've done maybe a seed round, then you've done a series A round, then you've series B, then series C, and then series D, right? So it's quite a few fundraisers there. Between Series A and Series D, the median value of founder equity hasn't increased at all. Mm. So that business has grown between Series A and Series D that the median is 6x. That business has increased 6x in value. So maybe you had a 50 million business uh, at Series A and now you have a 300 million business at Series D. But Your, your stake as a founder hasn't increased in value between those two stages because you've been diluted so much. Your hair density has fallen. Exactly, exactly. And there's a ton, there's a ton of stuff, a ton of work that's been done there. You've created you know, you create 6x value as a yeah. founder, and yet you own, your stake is worth exactly the same. And you've taken a lot of risk to get to that stage. And... That is, that's a broad brushstroke, right? Like that's yeah. looking at the whole industry. That's a ton of different companies. There are some companies that are very, very capital inefficient, right? They have maybe businesses which don't have positive unit economics. We saw a lot of that in the last cycle. They mm. raise a ton of value, a ton of capital, ton of capital, and don't create a huge amount of value actually underlying that. And then there are some exceptionally efficient businesses that do create a huge amount of value and maybe don't raise so much money. Mm. So that's that latter category. That's what we really focus on at D2. So we really, really zero in on efficient businesses. And our whole MO at D2 is thinking about how we can incentivize that efficiency, how we can sort of celebrate that, because the industry has... So sort of lionized big capital raises you know you get into TechCrunch, it's awesome yeah. like everyone celebrate their raise yeah, yeah. exactly people um, celebrate their raise whereas like the irony is you know all you've done is create a big millstone and you really better be worth it okay right you've you've yeah. raised that capital it really better be worth it because it's expensive money that you've just raised yeah people should view
0: capital raising as selling business early do you know what I mean and i just circle back on a few of those points a- effectively the like the summary of that is Venture funds are geared towards big, big companies. They only care if you're a billion. And they expect uh, the rest of the portfolio to fail, and they just want a couple massive hits. So they... And also, the reason I asked the question at the start was what's the typical fund process is not only... Do they want you to become a billion dollar company, but they also need you to do that within eight to 10 years, or if, if you're at the in, in six to 10 years, which is a really short amount of time to build a billion dollar company. So they pressure you to grow at potentially artificial feed. So maybe before you've got product market fit, or... In artificial markets, so markets where maybe a billion dollar company doesn't necessarily make sense, because it's not a market you can monopolize on, on it's not, but they don't care, because they they want to push you. And if, if, if you fail, they're like, okay, well, we've got 20 in the portfolio, this kind of stuff. So effectively, what you said, said there was the incentive structure for the managing partners at the typical venture fund in the typical industry, isn't aligned to the incentive structure of or the desired incentive structure for a founder. Because the founder wants to effectively, obviously, this is a generalization, but exit the business with as much money as possible. Obviously, there's stuff like you want to have build a big company and it's ego and stuff. But typically, simplifying it, you want to have a a great business where you exit and sell with a a large portion of the company and you make money. So even though you may have a, a billion dollar business or like a $200 million business, depending on your equity stake, you could bring more home from that $200 million business. So there's there's this like misalignment in in incentive structures. I guess we've covered why that's bad for the founder, right? It's because you're artificially grown for a business. But specifically like wider society and and specifically climate tech, why is that a problem? Are we missing out on stuff because that incentive structure exists? Yeah, it's a great it's
1: a great question. So let me start with sort of thinking about it a little bit more broadly and then kind of zero in on, on climate tech. So I think th- this idea of misalignment, it's, it's not always misaligned, right? Yeah. I think it's just important for founders to appreciate that their incentives aren't necessarily the same as the mm. venture fund right and that can work perfectly right you can you can be travelling in the same direction with different incentive structures so i think it's really really important to mention and i come back to that kind of prescription painkiller point right mm. there is there's a moment for some businesses where venture capital is really really useful and by all means take it i think the challenge that we have is that venture capital has become the one stop shop for every single new business that has a technology component to it everybody mm. thinks right cool i've got this great idea i'm going to go out and raise venture capital funding and I'm messages saying, hey, it might be right. It's probably not, but it might be right in case in, in some cases. And if it is right, think really carefully about how much money you actually need here versus just getting on this kind of, you know, rote conveyor belt saying, okay, every 18 months, I'm going to do another round, I'm going to do another round, I'm going to do another round, because that that's what results in really, really terrible outcomes. For climate tech specifically, I think climate tech has a, has a unique set of challenges when thinking about venture capital. So there are some businesses in the climate tech space that are great for venture capital. And so I would argue, you know, the kind of classic software businesses have been very, very well picked over in the climate tech space. I think a lot mm-hmm. of founders are trying to build in that space. Jury's out on whether or not competition kind of really, really hollows that out. But theoretically, yeah. there are some great businesses there. Then on the other end of the spectrum, there's deep tech businesses. Businesses which are generating a ton of IP. And that is arguably very, very close to the kind of roots of venture capital, right? And is a great application, at least in the early stages of venture capital dollars. But then in climate tech, you've got these businesses in the middle. And I think of these companies as sort of distribution plays, where maybe they're taking an established piece of technology and they're just trying to get it out there as much as possible. So, you know, maybe a good example is solar panels, right? Putting putting solar panels on people's roofs. That is a very, very established technology. It's a pure distribution game. And there's going to be some big winners there. And you've already seen companies like npal in Germany huge huge mm. companies but if you think about npal's capital stack most of its debt right so you mm. need you need that debt capital to actually get out there and distribute this and so there's a bit of a nuance in terms of okay should this be funded with venture capital should this be funded with debt in the climate tech space should this be funded with grants so there's real nuance this is not B2B SaaS, right, where it's, okay, fine, there's a playbook out there, I can go and, you know, I I get this early stage funding and off we go. So that's, climate tech is is by and large dealing with physical assets. So there's a completely different method for funding those businesses and a completely different risk return spectrum, depending upon the type of company you're trying to build.
0: Yeah. And also think because of the relatively, as you say, cookie cutter approach, where most funds follow the same structure, there are businesses that don't fit that structure. And they don't get funded.
1: Mm-hmm. So that's the yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but ab- absolutely. There's a lot of that. And it's really important to emphasize that venture capital isn't suitable for ninety-nine point nine percent of businesses, right? Yeah. Um it's its profile in the market is far, far larger than its applicability warrants. And it's yeah. because it's yeah, I guess seen as a as a validation and endorsement of your business, and as something that you know sort of creates these uh, these enormous businesses, these kind of unicorns. So it's quite aspirational, I think, as well. It's also in the media and the culture. It's a culture, really, isn't it? Where is which? When you say saying that, I was
0: just like, how ridiculous is this? Actually, where everyone follows the same eighteen month, then you raise eighteen month, then you raise because it really in- incentivizes inefficient growth, and like it's so basically the last. 15 to 20 years has been an era of free money Mm -hmm. where the discount, so the interest rates have been so low that the discount rate of that money has been effectively really low as well, which means that the cash flow's way in the future matter way more than cash flows today but as now inflation rising interest rates are rising those interest rates mean the discount rate is also coming so like cash flows today are starting to become increasingly more important and there and in those two scenarios in the first scenario inefficient growth is fine because it's like money's free Do you know what i mean we just want to get to we want to monopolize the market and and just take over as much as we can while the cash is free and now we're moving into the space where money is not free anymore so we actually really need to be more efficient with our capital. All, which is weird that I had to say that because that first scenario should never have happened. <laughs> it really should never have happened, right? Uh, we we should have all, always always gone for efficient growth. Anyway, so we we've covered what's wrong with the industry. How is D two different? How are you fix? How are you not? Fi- you're not trying to fix the industry. You're trying to give
1: founders another way. Yeah, the way that the way that I described D two is like I said, we look we're looking for these efficient businesses, and there's an element in terms of okay, well, how do we attract? Efficient business. I can give you some examples There's some absolute monster, monster, monster success stories out there. Viva Systems, for example. Viva Systems is, is essentially like a CRM platform for the med, medical industry, for the biotechnology industry. They raised $7 million of venture capital and they are IPO'd for kind of multi billion. You've got GitHub, Qualtrics, Calendly, Zapier, Atlassian, and the list just goes on and on and on and on. And these are businesses that have reached kind of multi billion outcomes. Um, with very, very little capital, and they're all in different sectors. So it shows that you can do this, especially in software, especially today, um, in lots of different sectors. There's loads of different paths to success there, and taking an efficient approach to growth is not saying, well, I don't want to build a big business. I'm not ambitious. You know, I just want a lifestyle company. It is possible to build an enormous company while also being really, really laser-focused in terms of what you raise and how you deploy it. So it's taking that ROI mindset to every single dollar that goes into your business. So back to D2, the way that we operate is we want to find these efficient businesses and we want to attract these efficient businesses. And so part of the way that we do that is by offering different sets of terms. So most of what we do is, is investing in straight equity, just like every other VC fund. It's just that we look for different companies and, and we prioritize maybe different things from some other funds. But we also then have different options. So we have an instrument called the Hero, which I can dive into a little bit. And yeah, then, let's let's run through the three,
0: right? So you've got, yeah. you got three models. Yep. First, equity only, which is what we've just spoken about. Two, you then... You, so in the companies that you've taken equity positions in early, you... You, you monitor them quite closely. And the ones that are being efficient with the capital, you then have the facility to offer debt, which makes you already really different to a lot of companies because debt capital is really tough to get as a founder. It shouldn't be, it really is. There's Silicon Valley Bank, there's this, that, the other. But particularly in the UK, you normally have to put your in-house on uh, for for a company in your business you know and like it's really weird so so that debt facility is really really important which means that you don't have to wait give away more of your company but you can still raise and then this third one which is really an innovation which i want to dive into that's really really cool so break down grandma speak what is the hero yeah yeah okay
1: so the Hero is, is inspired by a couple of funds in the US that have been experimenting with different models as well, but we've put our own spin on it and we've made it work in the UK and Europe. First of all, with the Hero, let's say we invest, let's use some simple numbers, a million into a company and that company has a valuation of 9 million. So you add one to the nine, it's 10. Um, the way that the Hero functions is that million gets us an option on 10% of the company. Fast forward, that company starts deploying the money, they, they work, they and they figure out, do you know what? We've got a really incredible opportunity here, and uh, we're going to go out and raise another round of venture funding. At that point, the hero just converts ahead of that round, and so in that scenario, the hero is exactly the same as if that company had gone out and raised a venture round and taken equity from us instead, right? So really, really simple structure, and it looks a lot like a safe instrument, if the listeners are familiar with that. The hero has some other paths as well, and that's that's where it gets different. So let's dial back to the scenario. We've got 10% option on that company. And instead of raising another round, the company decides, do you know what? We're not going to raise another round. Maybe we're profitable and we are just going to continue to build. And what happens then with the hero is a large part of it, so three quarters of it, ends up converting into a revenue share instead. So Every year, for five years, D2 would take a small percentage of revenue. That's probably around 5% of the company's revenue. How do you determine that number? It's company-specific. kind of depends upon how much they're raising, what the price is, and what the underlying business looks like. And is is that baked into the contract at the start? It is. And that's really important as well, right? Because that means if the company is kind of doing okay but not great – then that number doesn't increase. We still get 5% yeah, of their yeah. revenue. And so in that so, scenario- so you
0: put a million in, yeah. and then at what point do you start getting the rev share? After
1: three years. After three years. Yeah, so and it's then, quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, what's really important to emphasize is the hero is not, it's not debt, right? It's a, This is an equity-like instrument, and we want the companies that we invest in to actually generate a return from that capital before we start asking for it back. Now, what is the outcome? What's the outcome that we're aiming for here? So the outcome is if a company is hyper, hyper, hyper efficient in terms Mm -hmm. of how they grow, then the hero rewards that efficiency. And we can sort of dig into this if you want, but it works out as being about 75% cheaper for that company than had they raised a straight equity round. Mm -hmm. And that is because if you continue to grow, the value of your equity continue to increase. And if you've paid out a portion of it earlier, then you've paid it out cheaper, right? And the example that we use, Calendly, Calendly raised a very small, I think it was about half a million seed round, and they didn't do anything until they hit north of a billion after that. So had Calendly raised that 500K on a hero, it would have been about 75% cheaper for them than the equity that they sold. The other scenario, which is really important, is the business isn't that successful, right? So it's kind of okay. Maybe, you know, it reaches that point of break-even. It's never going to sort of change the world. But in that scenario, the hero is essentially like an off-ramp. So we don't get all our money back via the revenue share. Maybe we get sort of pennies on the pound back. But what's really important is we haven't, brute force this business into doing another capital raise just because kind of that's that's the way that venture works and we've said you know what you've built a good company this is probably going to be a really great business for you as founders not so for us as a fund so we're going to take a small portion of that money out and we'll redeploy it into the rest of our portfolio so there's three outcomes there in summary the first is you follow the standard venture path, the hero yeah. converts, does, it looks exactly like you'd raised on a safe note. The second is you absolutely blow the lights out and you build a really efficient business, 75% cheaper for you as a founder than had you raised equity. And mm. the third is it's an off-ramp uh, from venture capital and we don't destroy the business by trying to brute force you artificially.
0: Yeah, two questions there. Firstly, on the rev share, so you'd say it's like five, to whatever percent, and that's for five years between, three, between year three, from the investment mm-hmm. and year eight from the investment mm-hmm. is there any calculation done there as to like is there a minimum that company has to be making or is that you pretty much banking on the fact that they're making decent cash there because to make, so say you've invested in a million mm. you you in five in in those five years from year three to year eight that five percent of those five years of revenue needs to be more than that million it needs to be so not significantly more than a million because you've minimized your 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 downside on the other ones, but yeah. So like, how how, how is there is there a threshold? Is that like, yeah? How do you, how do you make sure that millions returned with 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 interest? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: So fundamentally, we're looking at the underlying business, right? And and we're we have to get sold, that there is a really tangible growth path where this business could be significant, where it could generate a substantial amount of revenue. Now, the fact that it's three years until we start collecting is really important, right? So, Mm. as I said, we want those companies to actually invest that capital, to generate a return from that capital, to grow. Three years is a very, very long time to go as a company if you are not break-even, right? Chances Mm. are you're going to have to do something at that point. So, you have to raise another round. You'd have to raise another round. Point, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe the, maybe the yeah. business is, has, has had to shut down. It's, it's had to sell itself, etc. So if you've hit that point of three years, you're probably at break even if you haven't raised. And either things are going very, very well, or they're not going very well. So that's the two. That's the two sort of outcomes mm. um, there for the hero. And. Look, we expect the majority of founders are probably going to raise capital again. So what we're investing for with The Hero is, again, it's this outlier game, right? We're mm-hmm. hoping that we find that next Calendly, that next Qualtrics, something like that, where they do grow incredibly efficiently. And it's not for everyone. And you know that's why we have a spectrum of different offers, a spectrum of different products. That's why we invest in regular equity. Ultimately, it's the founder's choice. Mm. Um, it's what type of business do they want to build but also look you know there's there's an element to this where you're introducing new terms into a market it takes time for people to get comfortable with that and most of the time we invest alongside other investors so other funds family offices individuals and so there's also an element where they need to be comfortable with that yeah. um, you know they need to get on board with the fact that this creates a different set of incentives for the founder yeah and then how does the off-ramp work If the company's not successful, how are you getting money back? So, I mean, the off-ramp is essentially saying that, look, the the percentage revenue share that we take, it's fixed at the percentage level rather than at the money level. So let's say, for example, a company's earning like 10 million a year. So that would be 500K that we'd be taking out fantastic that's really really great but let's say they're earning 100k a year well then we're taking 5k out yeah Mm. so it's a completely different outcome for us but it's the (laughs) same it's the same percentage right and so at that stage we're saying look if you're earning 100k a year we're probably not going to get a million back from you but we're probably not going to get a million back if we owned equity either and it's the case of saying do you know what this didn't work out so rather than try and brute force your business artificially we're just going to say look we'll take the small amount that we get that's you know you know that's the way it rolls yeah Yeah. exactly and we'll redeploy that but at the end of that you're left owning the majority of your business and you know you don't have a venture fund artificially in there or 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 in most cases when these businesses don't kind of make it you end up just becoming a zombie company in their portfolio and you don't get any of their attention anyway Mm. and this is a case of saying look okay fine it didn't work out for us as a fund but you've got a business that you're still running that you're enjoying and that's profitable so you go do that right yeah 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 (laughs) So obviously,
0: you you've raised capital from investors mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different proposition for the LPs in the fund. What was the sell to them? Yeah.
1: It is, yeah. it is, and it isn't right. So we are, we are very much a venture fund still, right? And we are looking for those massive outliers, just like any other venture fund. Yeah. The difference is that we think there are a ton of interesting businesses that don't raise huge amounts of capital to then get to that point of outlier. So arguably, you know, th- there's a position here where you say actually we're we're an even more extreme venture fund in terms of you know we're looking for that big big outlier. But a company that doesn't raise a huge amount of money to get there, right? Yeah. So it's our focus as a venture fund is incredibly tight in terms of the ROI on every single dollar that goes into a business. The hero is in a success case, it functions it's sort of exactly the same, right, as, as equity. The point of the hero is that is something that potentially attracts the type of founder that we're looking for and is more competitive as an offer than a straight venture fundraise. Yeah. So that's, I mean, it, it's wonderful. It creates, creates great incentives for founders, but it is also our way of saying, look, you know, we're going to be more aggressive than a regular venture fund that can only offer you one thing. In the scenario where sort of an investment off-ramps, right, there is no additional downside protection that the hero gives an investor than regular equity gives an investor. In both cases, that is not a good outcome. You're not going to get a great return on it, right? Yeah. There is an argument to say that there is a little bit of sort of upside constraint in terms of if you invested in Calendly, for example, all other Mm -hmm. things being equal, you would probably want equity versus a hero because it's been a great outcome. The difference is, if you've got two funds, one's offering the hero, one's offering straight equity, and you're the CEO of Calendly, and everything else is equal. If you're thinking really rationally, you'd go with the hero. Because you'd say, do you know what? This is going ultimately. If I kill this, if I get if I get a really good outcome in this company, this is going to be a cheaper source of capital. So it's just it's it's designed in that sense to be a bit more competitive than just saying, look, we'll we'll take straight equity in this business, um, mm-hmm. and it's trying to align the the fund and the founder behind this idea of let's create a really big business, but let's be really efficient in terms of how we do it the equivalent of a consumer
0: product would be like your amazon you're being the most customer centric you possibly can be whereas others are probably more focusing on their investors so so your differentiation is we're gonna we're gonna attract the best founders because this is the best offering for them right
1: yeah Yeah, exactly and i think if, if you think about the venture industry the venture industry is i think a lot of people confuse venture capital and say okay it's all about sort of you know, stock picking, as it were, right? There is an element to absolutely picking the right businesses, but so much of venture capital is access-based as well, right? Like, I say you- this
0: all the time: it's, <laughs> it's getting the cool. Because when there's a good deal, it's like I say this to my mates all the time: venture capital is about getting the cool. That's the that's the important bit because it's not hard to see a good deal when it's across the table, and ninety nine point nine percent of the, the time you're saying no, and point zero one percent
1: of the time you're fucking begging. Let <laughs> me. The, in. I love this analogy. Yeah, I think you mentioned this to me. Oh god, about six months ago, yeah. and I've actually said it to so many people. Yeah. It's, it's such a great description. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's just like I, I've been in so many meetings where you, you. I said, Fuck! I didn't get the call. So that's why the industry is so networked. Is you got to know everyone. You got to you got to go out there. That's why you got to build your brand. You got to do all this kind of stuff because the most important thing is getting the call.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And if you if you are yet another generalist early stage venture fund, there's very little to distinguish you from all of the other great early stage venture funds that exist out there, right? And so yeah. access is really important. Like, how do we attract the best founders building businesses that align with our thesis? And so yeah. that's that's what the hero is really all about. It's saying, look, we we want to see that company. We want to see that founder. And how can we attract you? And how can we do that by creating a uh, a product which aligns all of us behind the type of business that we all want to see here? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think it's so fascinating, so so interesting. And like when you say this, like this is how it always should have been. Well, I'm so surprised it's such a new innovation, right?
1: It is and it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. So what you've seen over the last, oh, God, 10, 20 years, like cloud computing costs have come down by 90%. Today, you've got this incredible tech stack that you can build off, right? So you you get your Google Drive, you get your Slack going, you've got your Gmail. All of these products are free at the start. And so you've got this incredible base to build a business on. And today, you have that ability to go out and start selling a product Almost immediately, if you're Mm. building a software business. You know, it's not going to be the finished article. Maybe it's a bit of a sort of mechanical Turk-type structure, like nothing's automated. You're doing all the work in the background. But it is possible for a lot of these businesses. It wasn't. 15 years ago, right? Yeah. 20 years ago. And so it is now, it's much more possible to build efficient businesses today than it, than it was in the past. And, you know, now everyone's sort of working remotely. Um, you've got chat GPT that can probably do Yeah, I was going to say that. You know, yeah. <laughs> AI is doing everything for you. Exactly, so yeah. exactly. And, and, and so the, the, trend is, the trend is here. You're, you're challenging a lot of these businesses, and I think the reason why a lot of companies aren't that efficient is it's, you know, the barrier to entry is so low now. Mm. so yes it's really easy to start one of these businesses but now everyone can do it and so okay how do you get that competitive advantage so i think that's why a lot of businesses end up going down the path of saying well i need as much money as possible because i've got all this competition behind me so yeah and they just pump it back into marketing there was a time i don't know if it's still the case
0: but like literally 50 percent of vc dollars were just going straight back into facebook it's a great start yeah it's it's unbelievable isn't it? that's why facebook's so good as a business they kind of veered off now because they're just blindly investing in VR, but anyway, that's a, that's a topic for a different time. Like,
1: How do you identify when they come to you who the efficient founders are going to be? Yeah, it's a great question. So they come in lots of different shapes and sizes. So the most obvious signal that you get is a founder has bootstrapped their business for a period of time, and bootstrapping, just for anyone that's not aware of it, is self-funding a company. So you're not taking in any external capital in order to build that business. And we see bootstrap businesses that have got to, let's say, a million of revenue without having taken any dilutive funding. That's an incredible achievement for any founder. It's a really, really strong signal that you've built a business, you've built a product that customers yeah. really want. And they're pulling out of your hands and you've done that in the most efficient way possible. So that's a big factor. The second, you know, the second element is Is the market that you're building it in? There are just some markets where Mm. it is easier to be efficient than others. So if you have a sort of strong hardware component to your business, it's harder, right? It's Mm. harder to be really efficient. You need a bunch of upfront capital to get going. If you're building a software business, it's easier. If you're building in a specific niche that people don't really think about, don't know about, or requires a bunch of technical expertise, Chances are it's easier to be efficient than if you're building a another sort of enterprise productivity tool where you're up against some really big guys, right? Yeah. Um, so those are those are really important factors. The other is like the underlying business itself. So can you charge customers upfront for your product or is this something that you have to wait a long time until you get capital back? So the kind of working cap dynamics. If you can charge a customer upfront for maybe a year or even more of your product in terms of revenue, well that allows you to sort of self-fund, right? You're being funded by customer revenue straight from the get-go. So those are just a couple of areas that we really really look The other is the founder's mindset. And this is a really, really important one. So it's, okay, what type of business do you want to build? So one of the founders in our portfolio, I think when I first met her, she said, every single pound in this business has to either increase the top line or the bottom line. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And that right there is the purest summary that I've ever heard of a founder that wants to build a really, really lean, efficient business. Whereas a lot of founders... Candidly, they they want to be in TechCrunch. They want to raise the big round, right? They, they 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 need that validation. They need that sort of proof. I mean, that's fine, right? That's and, and and that's a particular approach. It's not necessarily the approach that we always buy into.
0: How do you strike that balance as a founder between being like,
1: wh- when is a founder too frugal? It's a great question. And, you know, I I do emphasize to all of our portfolio founders, a lot of founders that we talk to, that we do not believe in capital constraint, right? We just believe in capital efficiency. And those are two really distinct things. What you don't want to have is a business where you have obvious demand and you can't meet that demand, right? That's a great, great situation to be in, but it's also a really strong signal that you probably should bring some extra capital into the business that you should raise again. And within our portfolio, we've got kind Companies where you're like, yep, yeah, 100%, you need to raise again, right? You're doing yeah. really well, product's ripping, but you need to fund X, Y, and Z component, and you can't do that right now. And if you don't do it, you're probably going to miss the opportunity. Great use case. Great, great yeah. reason to raise. Versus... You know, the distinction is this kind of the, the perma-raise. Like, every 18 months, fine, okay, we, we need to manufacture some KPIs that justify raising more capital. Say, like, okay, well, is this masking a really terrible business model or is this actually genuinely being used to build out new features, new product, access new markets, hire people that you need? Those are two really, really different reasons to raise. Yeah. Um. And it's not it's not always obvious on the surface, right? You need to dig here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Because I've been involved with businesses that are on both sides, I've been involved with businesses that spend too much, and it's like oh, this is. I mean, like, there's effectively every penny you spend there's every is like a small percentage of the business that you're gonna have to give away too early, and then and then ultimately that's like gi- gi- giving away equity too early is so
1: expensive. That's a really really important point yeah. to double click on, right? Yeah. And so pre seed and seed stage. Those are really, really expensive rounds. It is daylight robbery. Yeah,
0: hey, I had this. um, I I watched uh, Dragons Den last night. I I, (laughs) I love it for so because obviously I love this industry and stuff. But that is daylight robbery. The valuations they get on that show is wild. They like raised twenty k for like thirty percent of their business. I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) And the businesses are doing. They're still making good money. But yeah, anyway, watch that. That's an extreme example. But the early stage, you give away so much of your business for. Not not enough. So the more frugal you can be, particularly at the earlier stages, the better. However, there's the flip side, which is you need to spend sometimes to take up opp- opportunities. Hundred percent, yeah,
1: hundred percent. And so there there isn't a hard and fast rule here, right? And, yeah, and it's really important to emphasize that every single company is different, but. Every single company is different. So mm. you really need to think about the business that you're building and what you actually need to build this business versus saying, Okay, there is a template out here that I follow and I just I, I go and do that because X, Y, and Z has done that in a different industry. Mm. If if you can skip around, if you can say skip your pre-seed or skip your seed round, you can end up owning a materially larger share of your business, right? Yeah. And so there isn't, this isn't to say, okay, loads of funding equals bad, you know, no funding equals good. There's a spectrum. It depends on the type yeah. of business you're building. But you really, really need to think very carefully about that.
0: Yeah, because literally tiny decisions in the earlier stages, when your business grows, is millions, massive millions and millions like, even though the small percentages at the start like fuck me does that have some knock-on effects yeah it's yeah. crazy aside from the industry aside from um the fact that they you want you want them to be frugal what else are you looking for as a founder
1: as an in, inner founder that makes you think take my money <laughs> yeah 100 percent. so we really really like founders with with deep domain expertise and so what does that mean it means founders that have worked in the industry in which they're building a product, right? And mm. and that's a really, really important factor for us. We see a lot of businesses, there are a lot of businesses which I um, sort of think of as I've experienced this pain point kind of type company where it's like, oh, do you know what? I've been walking down the street and I've thought of this business and those those types of companies, and let me try and give you an example, like, I don't know, a sock subscription business. I'm sort of exaggerating <laughs> the point, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I hate going out to buy socks, so I should start a sock subscription business. Those businesses tend to have very, very limited uh, barriers to entry. They tend to be incredibly competitive. They don't tend to be great investments. The ones that we get really excited about are companies, for example, we're looking at a business in federated learning at the moment, right? And and the founders have spent... What's federated learning? Federated learning is where you push models to the end node point. So for example, if you have a, a factory with robotic arms, for example, rather than managing all of the rules mm-hmm. for those robotic arms centrally, you're pushing down a set of parameters to the end node point, And those robotic arms are learning and understanding and, and changing their behavior based upon um, the conditions that they're interacting with, right? This is really, really cool stuff. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of um, open source federated learning models out there. How you actually deploy that into businesses is, is really challenging. The founders of this company have worked in this space for 15 years, right? They know it inside out. That is a really, really interesting company to us, partly because of where the founders have come from. They have that unique insight on the sector because they've spent so much time there. The other thing that we look for is balance in a founding team. And so you tend to find some companies where The two founders have almost identical skill sets, right? And they're great mates, for example, or they just came together serendipitously. We prefer companies where, for example, you have someone who is demonstrably a fantastic salesman Mm -hmm. and the other guy is really, really good on the tech side. And that's where they want to spend all their time. Um, Those two together um, can be phenomenally powerful. So especially where you have a founding team that is able to deliver an MVP, at least of the product, between them. So you have that technical person, you have the person that's actually able to build the code base to get out there and sell it. So you're not doing that first raise just to try and build the product to validate whether or not anyone actually wants it. They've been able to go out and they've been they can do that without external help. So those are two things which we love to see.
0: Yeah, I've actually mentioned that exact dynamic on the pod because it was the first. And I know Chris, so Chris, my first mentor, and he's a investor in your fund, right? Um he he him and his co founder had that exact relationship and it's so I've always been like attuned to it, like a demonstrably I like that word, good salesman and then someone that can just operate. And the guy that you met just there the, the, on the last pod, the pods will come about a week apart, but I recorded them back to back. He's he's that guy. He's a salesman and his his co founder Rob is uh, such a good operator. And it's really it's it really interesting because I used to I I still love sports but I used to study sports and how what makes a good team work and and there's a really good book called Legacy on how the All Blacks we're not, we're not that good anymore, but how, how how that kind of like 2007 to 2015 period was so effective. And they were like, we're focusing on partnerships. Mm. Like we're looking for a center partnership, a nine ten partnership, you know, partnerships across the pitch that can play really well together. And I've always thought that's so applicable to business. It's like you need those kind of, those partnerships to bounce off each other. So if your best mate is a little similar to you, business still can work, but it's really effective to have those kind of, I guess, I guess different hires. How involved are you with the businesses after you invest in them? And and what does that
1: dynamic slash relationship look like? Yeah, so this is this is a really really important topic in venture capital in terms of like how much value add do you provide as a fund? And we're a very new fund, we're only about a year old and so we're still slightly feeling our way in terms of okay, where is the maximum impact that we can create in our portfolio companies and the companies yeah. that we invest in and where, you know, where do we run the risk of just creating a bunch of noise? And so what we've found to be quite effective so far is we have helped place some pretty senior candidates into some of our portfolio companies. Yeah. I think when you can source candidates reliably at scale, it's really valuable to an early stage business. You know, they're making they're making their first couple of hires, they're really, really important ones. Um, the second element is you know, where our companies go on and raise follow-on rounds. We have introduced the lead investor. In one case, follow-on investor in another. I think that's also really, really powerful for those, uh, for those companies. In some of our others, we've spent quite a bit of time working through product. So acting as a bit of a sounding board in terms of okay, we want to go in this particular direction, we think this is how we want to pitch the product, and we offer, I guess, a third party sounding board that is a sort of safe space. How how we scale those, how we sort of standardise them, that's a little bit T B C, right? So we're still iterating and we're still sort of very, very early days on this sort of stuff. But our objective at the moment is to be the very first call that any of our portfolio companies want to make. So where we're investing as part of a syndicate with other venture funds, our objective is um, after a couple of months, we're the first call that founder wants to make when they mm. want to talk to one of their investors. So that's the kind of the bar that we set for ourselves, and how we get there at the moment is still open.
0: Yeah, something that's really interesting for people not necessarily in the industry is how does that funnel look like of. Of top of I'm getting the deals into deal right because I think what a lot of founders don't realize is just how many deals come across the table yep. for all investors and 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 I think um I've spoken to a lot and I get it's so I get so many messages on LinkedIn because I, I do a bit of personal investing I've been involved in the investment space for a long time more more on the kind of like family office side than than the fund but still and they message me I don't reply they message me again I don't reply they message me again I don't reply and then they get fuming that I haven't replied and they send me this really rude message and I'm like dude you haven't even looked at my website and, and they're like what do you mean it's just like I do sustainable brands climate brands you know you're an e-com I don't invest in that like you can't get angry at me when you haven't even looked at my fucking website and there's there's that and then there's also the fact that there is just so much stuff out there mm. and so much stuff particularly on LinkedIn and how accessible people are these days you
1: have to really stand out. So, I mean, how many deals are you looking at? Yeah. So, yeah. last year we saw three and a half thousand companies and we made uh, it will be six investments. So, we've got a couple going through confirmatory. So, yeah. I mean, that gives you an idea, right? Yeah. Um, and now the top, the top of the funnel is really intentionally wide. I think the vast majority of venture funds would say the same thing. You want the top of the funnel wide. You want to be seeing as much as you possibly can. And you know where there's a, a seed round in the UK that happens and we didn't see the company, that's mm. a moment of reflection for us. Like, wow, okay, how did we miss this? How did this not happen? Now, it's not to say that that's the right company for us at all or we're the right f- uh, venture fund for them, but we want to be seeing as much as we possibly can, right? And so we always hold ourselves to, okay, can we see every single deal that happens in our market? And you know that's the end goal for us. But the top of the funnel, there's a lot of stuff which, as you say, it's out of your sector, it's out of your stage, it's out of your geography. and, and so you triage that down really, really quickly. And I think it's important for founders to to understand that if they get to that point if that first conversation with a VC sounds ridiculous, but you've already you know you've gone above like 90 percent of companies yeah. um, just by doing that just because that top is so wide. How long of your attention span?
0: do they? Do, do you give them? And that sounds like a ridiculous question. Yeah. How quickly do they have to get your attention? Because you're getting so many deals. Just mathematically, yeah. you can't be giving all deals the same amount of attention. So like how important are those first few seconds of an outreach or... Or the design, or whatever. Like, what's important to you? What What makes you think I want to di- I want to
1: do more research into this? There's lots of different ways to do it. There's one which guarantees that we're going to spend some time, and that is the tailored outreach. So, mm. vast, vast, vast majority of founders that just reach out through you know the form on the website or via an email will have an email which is really obviously a template that they've sent to sort of 50 other <laughs> venture funds that you know isn't isn't a great way to get attention yeah. a really great way is to say look I've read some of the stuff that you've put online I've looked at some of your portfolio companies you know I think we're a fit because of this this and this reason or I I liked this this is what sort of drew me in um, to applying to you and that guarantees that I'm going to open up the pitch deck and I'm going to take a good look through it mm. and I'd, I'd say that's the same for any venture fund right same
0: for any company Joel yeah. Joel said the same I asked Joel who's the pod before he the the, the probably the most polar opposite sector to you mm. and asked him how did you go about getting your first few big clients he said exactly the same thing tailored tailored uh, messages and, yeah. and p- uh, really personal
1: uh, understand who you're speaking to not just like massive outreach because it, like it's annoying <laughs> i mean we're all getting so yeah. many emails these days there's so many linkedin messages and requests it doesn't matter what industry yeah. you work in and so if you've just done the work and really thought about why you want to approach someone you stand out a mile
0: Yeah, exactly. We got literally five minutes left. So we don't have time to go into this one in as much detail as I would have liked. But I Mm. think it's important just to give a quick overview. You were previously in corporate VC, which is very different to the typical funds that we know. Yeah, what is the main difference in your opinion? But most importantly, when should a
1: company look at one versus the other? Yeah. Okay. So this is an awesome topic. So CVC has a ton of advantages. VC also has some advantages, really important to think through them and what the trade-offs are with both of those models. So with corporate venture capital, what you tend to have is an evergreen structure. So they don't have the same sort of fund life that we've been talking through yeah. this kind of 10-year concept. They They can hold an investment for as long as it takes. So that's a massive advantage if you're a company because you're never going to be, you know, prematurely selling your business because your your investor wants you to. You're going to sell when it's the right time for your company. So that's great. The second obvious tick and is the you know is the sort of the promised land for any C V C is that you're going to get a contract with that end customer. So, you know, if you've taken Capital from Microsoft, from M12, for example. You're hoping, all right. Well, maybe we can get this partnership agreement with Microsoft, and because I'm in their portfolio, I'm going to be much more visible, right? And so that's that. All CVCs. Um, that's a big reason to take that capital. The third is, you know, if you're in, a, if you're building in a particularly technical space, you uh, you get a big source of you get a big stamp of approval, big validation by the corporate that. You know, probably has a lot of specialists um, within their company that they can call on to due diligence this business. And, and so that's a big factor. And the final one that I emphasize is corporates tend to follow a different economic cycle to a venture fund. So if we think about 2022, there was this big correction, a lot of venture funds pulled back, started focusing on their portfolio. Depending on what sector you were in, a lot of corporates were doing really, really well. Like you think about the energy sector, a lot of a lot of energy corporates were doing phenomenally last year. And so, mm. okay, maybe you've got a mix of different funders. Some of your VC funds like, whoa, okay, we're pulling back at the moment. But your corporate investors are saying, well, actually, we've got a lot of money at the moment, we can deploy. And so it, it kind of shields you if you've got that plurality of different investors. The trade-off, the flip side, Corporates tend to take quite a while. You know, they tend to have a lot more process. It uh, tends to be, you know, larger committees. You know, very sort of, it can be quite cumbersome to get uh, a deal done. So it does take longer than an early stage venture fund. The other risk in some corporates is you really want to be thinking about, okay, how long has this venture unit within this corporate been here for? In this company, is this a company that's really committed to having a venture unit, or is this just a set, like a little? Sort of hobby project, or it's the top of the market, and they're going to start investing in some startups. You want to know that that corporate's going to be there, that they're not going to sort of wind down their venture unit at the very first sign of some economic stress in their industry. So, really, really important uh, to think through that. And then the other big risk, and I'd, I'd say this is this is quite rare to find, but you want to make sure that an investment from a corporate isn't a backdoor to M and A. Right, and mm. the vast majority of CVCs have a venture unit which is completely separate and distinct from M and A. But there are some companies, and this is a little bit more historic, but there are others that still exist out there that you know will come in and say, "Okay, by virtue of me having a stake in your company, you're not going to sell to any of my competitors," and oh, that. Okay. How uh, can they pressure you to do that? It's soft pressure a lot of the time, right? But you might have, I've seen some situations where a company has invested in a business and said, okay, here's the partnership contract alongside our investment. And in that partnership contract is an exclusivity agreement, which means you cannot work with any of our competitors unless you come to us first, right? And so- The fine print. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you want to be really, really careful about that. And I I would say that is rare to see, but it's a biggie. It's a biggie if it comes along. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Crazy. (laughs)
0: Cool, so right out of time, but I want to end on a, on a fun note. I asked this to a lot of my guests. If I was to take DT away from you, if I was yeah. to take investing away from you, mm-hmm. and I said you have to start a business in climate, mm-hmm. what what, what sector slash business would you yeah. do? Yeah,
1: so, I mean, this is a bit nerdy, and I'm sorry because I'm a finance guy, but <laughs> I, I am really, really interested in the future of carbon markets, and I can say why. Carbon markets, just a really interesting carrot and stick yeah. um, in terms of how people price the externality of carbon, right? And so you mentioned at the start of the pod, right? Like people have been focused on, okay, how do I manufacture this in the cheapest way possible? And that doesn't include the externality of, okay, I've destroyed the environment in order to create this product. Carbon markets, be they mandatory or voluntary, kind of moving towards that, they're very imperfect in a lot of different places, but I'm really, really interested in the future of that. And I'm really interested specifically in risk transfer within that space in terms of okay what does that actually mean how you buy and sell carbon creates risk right and yeah. be that sort of insurance be that trading be that you know maybe even carbon banks in the future i think that space is really interesting really mm. really interesting really messy at the moment lots and lots of problems but yeah i think it's a space to watch yeah, glad you said that.
0: It's one of my investments.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, keto. Have You had a keto? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was
0: in there. Anyway, dude, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Um, thanks, thanks so much, so much for listening me, as well. Hope you guys enjoyed that. And um, yeah, see you next week. Awesome. Yeah.